Good morning and again, welcome to The Grove. As we start Advent, you've heard already this morning just all of the ways that it is a season of trying to kind of shift our focus and reprioritize the light that is coming into the world. Now, for us, we have to spend extra time emphasizing that. Advent is a really old tradition uh, where you would increasingly light more candles, not just in the little wreath that maybe some of you grew up using in church, but it was just a general season uh, in the time of the church where more and more light would enter the world, kind of symbolizing the coming of Christ and his light into the world. But nowadays, we've got a really bright world. We've got a lot of light. Light is easy, light is cheap, light's all around. My guess is you've spent like $200 in the last three or four weeks for enough lights that you could light up like half of like the town just because light has become so simple and easy and cheap to make and to hang up. And so we have lights everywhere in our world today. But it wasn't that long ago that this wasn't actually the case. You see, the shift in technology around lighting only really took off over the last 120, 140 years. 150 years ago, the best we could do was like a candle made out of animal fat. The best we could do. And that was the dominant technology for how we would light up our world for the last thousands and thousands of years of human civilization until the invention of the light bulb and then the way that that technology has transformed and changed over time that we can have light at any point and any time that we want. In fact, this kind of rate of growth and the availability and the ease of lighting, they say scientists are starting to notice that it has shifted our sleep patterns. Prior to 150 years ago, there would used to be kind of this middle of the night wake up based on our circadian rhythms. There was so much darkness in the world as we are now aware, you know, as soon as daylight savings shift, it's like, oh my gosh, it's 4.30 and it's like pitch black outside. Well, that was how life used to be. But they, did, they couldn't come inside and flip on all the lights and kind of like maintain that there was light in their world. It was dark. They might have a little candle with a little glow, but it was really hard to get candles. You had to make them yourself and you used animal fat and they didn't burn very well and they were really messy. It's like, you know, the way that your hands and maybe your clothes look after you've eaten fried chicken. It's that same experience with candles back then made out of animal fat. And so they've noticed that as light has become more popular, uh, the way that we sleep has changed. Previously, you would sleep for three or four hours, and then you'd have somewhere around 2.30, 3 a.m. For those of you that struggle with middle-of-the-night insomnia, this is not a new phenomenon that's happening to you. It's your body trying to maintain an old way of operating that our modern world has kind of, kind of taken us out of. So you'd wake up in the middle of the night, and you know, maybe you'd have a snack or do something, and you'd go back to sleep for another three to four hours. But with the invention of kind of modern electronic technology and lighting systems, that way is, is, is gone. And then kind of in the discovery around 150 years ago, um, kind of in the New England area, now whether this, was, this animal was killed or washed up on the shore, there was this giant sperm whale that came onto the shores of New England. And they discovered that inside the skull of these large whales was like up to 500 gallons of this oily substance. And when lit, they realized that this oily substance found in the skulls of whales 
burned white and bright and hot. And they had developed and discovered this new technology for lighting in the world. And it took off kind of like a rocket. It was unbelievable the way that it spread around the world because it was a better version of lighting than the lighting that everybody had, had kind of been used to their entire lives and for thousands of years. But because you had to harvest it from inside the skull of giant whales, this was really, really difficult. And there's a really kind of famous account of this uh, in the book called In the Heart of the Sea, and it's about the whaling ship, the Essex. They've recently made a movie about it in the last couple of years, but this is a story of a whale that attacks a ship, and then these men are kind of lost at sea, all in the attempts to try to harvest these whales. It was a very dangerous and a very expensive endeavor. This story and account actually kind of gave rise to Herman Melville writing Moby Dick. So all of this is happening about 150 years ago until the invention of the light bulb. And they say that these candles, kind of these whale fat candles, were so expensive that we have in George Washington's notes that he spent kind of in modern day dollars upwards of fifteen to $20,000 a year on these candles. You see, light was really, really expensive when you couldn't get it, when you didn't have it. You were limited by the darkness that was around you. You were subject to the darkness unless you had just an unbelievable amount of wealth or means. Fast forward to today, and they say that our night sky, NASA photos look something like this, our night sky, not just in America, but in the world in general, are 6,000 times brighter than they were 150 years ago. 6,000 times brighter, all in the last 150 years. And so it makes sense why, for a people who have grown up with light, always available, always with the flick of a switch or the push of a button, that we wouldn't have the proper perspective to understand the season of Advent in the way that it used to find itself. We wouldn't have the perspective about how hard it was to actually gain light when you didn't have it and about just how dark the world around us truly is. If there's a street light out on your block, we call the city because we can't tolerate any amount of darkness in our world today. I have, like to go camping when I can get away and do it, and I oftentimes bring friends who haven't spent a lot of time camping, and that's always the comment they make, is, wow, I didn't realize how dark it is outside. And it sounds funny and we laugh, but there's lights everywhere, and there's lights all around us, and so it's hard for us to remember just how dark it used to be. And so in many ways, we've kind of forgotten the context in which this Christmas story enters our world and enters the world. It was a time when it was a really, really dark world, literally and figuratively. And so this morning and for the next several weeks, I just kind of want to talk about what it might look like for us to rediscover light in a new way. There's light all around us. We can have it at any point. And as Michael mentioned, there are lots of things that serve as substitute lights. But there is one true light that Scripture talks about. And we believe that during this season, it's an opportunity for us to refocus on it, to rediscover it in a new way. And so that's what we're going to talk about the next couple of weeks. And to do so, we're going to be in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to stay in this chapter because this chapter in the Gospel of Luke is the setup to 
is the preface in many ways to the Christmas story that so many of us kind of know and love about Mary and Joseph and the donkey and the manger and all of kind of the nativity sets that you have throughout your house. But Luke does an intentional job to set up the context. But it's easy for us to skip past it, to skip over it, and to ignore just how dark that world is because we're so used to all of the lights. So I want to spend a little bit of time this morning walking through a bit of the preface to the Christmas story that might help us rediscover some light in our own life. So if you've got your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Luke chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, find the maps, and there's just a couple more books. And if you have your phones, you can pull them out and follow along with us. And if not, I've got it on the screen. So Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Now, In just a couple of verses, Luke sets up a ton of context, and this is the first attempt at that. In these nine words, Luke tells you so much about what you need to know about the darkness of the world during that time period. In the days of King Herod of Judea. In the days of King Herod of Judea. Now, if you were hearing this being told or reading this in the first century context, you knew all about the days of King Herod of Judea. King Herod was put in place by the Roman Empire to manage, to control, to levy taxes on the Judean county or region at that time period. He was such a good servant of Rome that it said that some of the taxes that he would impose upon these first century Jews would be upwards of 90%, rendering many of them homeless and surrendering kind of family land that they have held for generations because of the the taxes that he would levy on these people. You might be familiar with King Herod and some of his uh, acts in the Gospel of Matthew. When learning about the birth of this new king, he had the murder of all of the Jewish boys under the age of two in the region. He just said there can't be another king. He was the king of Judea. And so he just had a whole kind of age and generation of young Jewish boys executed. But it didn't just stop with other people's boys. He had his own children executed. There's kind of a famous quote about kind of the cruelty of Herod from the 4th century, and it said that it's better to be one of Herod's pigs than to be Herod's son. He had a number of his own children and many of his wives killed because he was so focused on maintaining his tyrannical control of this area. Herod was a terrible, terrible person. And they said that at the end of Herod's life, because of all of the things that he had done, you can imagine that his kind of popularity rating was pretty low. And so to ensure upon his death that people in the city would be mourning, he filled the stadium with well-loved, well-respected, and well-appointed people throughout the city. And upon his death, they were all to be executed so that the entire city would be in a state of mourning upon his death. Obviously not for Herod for all of these other people killed, but this is the type of person that we're dealing with. So in the days of King Herod of Judea, really tells a story about just how dark the world was at that time. And so if you're already a little bummed, this morning, just get ready, it gets worse. But Luke doesn't waste words, Luke's intentional. He wants you to recognize just how dark the world is because it's upon this backdrop 
that he says that light is coming into the world. Darkness has its limits and darkness will not last forever. And so as you turn on the news, we're in a state of the world where it is constantly filled with fear, uncertainty, and death. And so it is easy to find your current flavor du jour of darkness. Whether it's the divisiveness in our nation, this new developing variants of the COVID virus, the state of the economy, it doesn't matter, just pick. You can find something to be disappointed in, saddened by, worried because of. It's a dark world. But what's true about the story, this first Christmas story, is also true about our day. Darkness has its limits and darkness will not last forever. And so Luke goes on. In this time period, in this really dark world, in the days of King Herod of Judea, there's a man, a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, it begins to describe two people who enters characters into this story, and some of the things that you need to know about them is they come from good stock. They're born from a long lineage of people who had standing in their Jewish society. They were a part of the priestly tribe of Aaron. Their parents had good jobs. The parents before them had good jobs. You could understand from some of the context clues given in this passage that Luke is trying to let you know these are people who live in a nice neighborhood and who are smart and educated just like their family has been for generations. And then he goes on to describe them in a little more detail in verse 6. He says, both of them were righteous before God. The character and the quality of their life was pleasing in God's sight. They treated people well. They made the right choices. They lived according to God's rule in their life. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. Now, on top of kind of the genes that they've inherited, the families that they've been born into, Luke wants you to know that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, they are really upstanding people. They're just the cream of the crop. They are really great people. And he tells you all of this to create a juxtaposition for what's going to happen next so that you can understand a little bit of context about this next detail. So in verse 7, righteous people born of priestly families, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and both were getting on in years. Uh, marriage tip from the unmarried. Uh, husbands, don't describe your wives these, what, this way. Getting on in years, don't do that. That will not be blameless before God or righteous before anybody. Um, but here's the juxtaposition that Luke is intentionally trying to set up. Because at the time, the way that people understood how the world worked was if you do good, you get good. If you make good choices, then good things will happen to you. Now, that's not all that dissimilar to kind of some of the folk myth that we carry around in our day-to-day -day about why do bad things happen to good people. We ask that question because there's kind of this assumption that if you do the right thing, then good things happen to you. This was really kind of this prevalent and predominant view of the way that the world works. And so what Luke is trying to tell you 
is that in the midst of kind of the genes and the legacy that they've been born into, in the midst of the way that they live their life, this really awful, really terrible thing has happened to them. And so the readers would struggle to understand. It didn't seem to make sense to that first century context. So it wasn't like these were bad people and something bad happened to them because we could make sense of that. It's like, yeah, of course, because they're bad people. This is why something bad happened. Now, these were really, 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 really good people. And yet something bad was happening, had happened, was continuing to happen to them. Now, even in our modern world, barrenness is really a delicate and difficult topic. I know that there are many of us who either know someone or are someone or are family with someone who have struggled to get pregnant. That has not been something that's been easy for them or maybe there's been a season where you've tried and you've just given up hope. So even in our 21st century context, barrenness is a really delicate thing. In the first century context, it was even worse because it was the sole opportunity for a woman to have status, standing, and identity in the first century world. Women were divorced and cast aside because of their inability to conceive children. And so what Luke is trying to help you understand is that even to really, really good people, something dark was happening in their life. There was this inability to conceive and give birth to children. And so outside of kind of the literal application to today, I think this barrenness serves as a metaphor for kind of the hopelessness that can sometimes find its way into our lives. Dreams that you've held that haven't come true or dreams that you had that are now dead because there's no life where you hoped that there would be life. I was visiting one of our congregants just yesterday afternoon in the hospital and I asked him, I said, is it lonely in here? And he'd recently, or in the last couple of years, had buried his wife and his oldest son. And he looked at me and he said, I've been lonely for three years. And it just reminds me that like, even in the midst of all of the joy and the celebrating of this season, that not only in our larger world can it be dark, but even in our interior worlds, it can feel really dark as well. And so I don't know what that might look like for you. There might be a season that you found yourself in that you never thought that you would be here. You didn't know that this type of a season would ever be possible. You're sitting there trying to make sense of it all because in your heart of hearts, you're like, God, I'm a good person. Why is this happening to me? It's no different than Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. Whether it's health, whether it's financial, whether it's relation, relational, like we all are trying to navigate these places of darkness in our own life. What I think is important to point out is what I think Luke's trying to help us recognize is this season of barrenness that they found themselves in, hopelessness because of their age and inability to, to give birth to a child, was nothing of their own doing. And for many of us, I hope that you hear that. My guess is that it's easy to think that, well, I've screwed up and done this, and so I'm at fault. That may be true in some ways. There are consequences to actions and choices that we make in life. But for many of you, the season that you find yourself in, if it feels particularly dark, might just be a season and nothing that you've done wrong. But it's on this backdrop of this world run by this tyrannical ruler 
in this backdrop of really good people struggling with a really hard problem, that Luke says that there's hope, that darkness has its limits, that it will not be dark forever, and then upon this scene, the light is coming. In the midst of all of the despair, all of the doubt, all of the worry, all of the hopelessness that you feel, that you experience, that you see in the larger world or that you see in your world, there's light that's coming. At Christmas, we can experience light entering into our world. And so this is what happens in the rest of the story. In verse 8 Once when he was serving as a priest before God and his section was on duty. You could read this a different way. On just an ordinary day. On just an average Tuesday. Once. All of this bad stuff's happening and then when they least expect it. On just a casual morning when he's serving as priest before God and his section was on duty. He was chosen by lot. According to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now what this means is he has to leave all of the other people that he's serving with and he steps into a place where he is all alone. And it's there in this moment that something happens. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside, yet he's on the inside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar. Now, in that time period, these angels were often called messengers. But another name for them was beams of light. And so in the midst of the darkness of Zechariah and Elizabeth's world, in the midst of the loneliness of this situation, when he was all alone, away from other people, in the midst of the world run by a tyrannical ruler, when it feels like it couldn't get any darker, a being of light appears with a message of hope. And this is what happens. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him, as you could imagine it would. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. For our context... I want to be careful not to promise you that if you just pray, eventually, after waiting long enough, that God will answer your prayer. That might be true, and that might happen for you. But I've seen this story used irresponsibly to say that just hold out hope, it's all going to be okay. It will all be okay, it just may not be okay in the way that we want it to be okay. And that's a big difference. But here's the point of the angel's message that I want us to hear today. Your prayer has been heard. In the midst of the darkness of our world, in the midst of the darkness that you may be experiencing in your world, your prayer has been heard. And it may not look like the birth of a son named John, but there is something coming into the world that will bring light to your world. And it may look different for each of us, And it may not look like what you prayed for, but there is something coming into your world, a light that is coming into your world that brings with it hope. It may be a different kind of hope than you anticipated, and it may not be what you expected, 
but there is a limit to darkness and there is light coming. Now, this is the message that the angel brings to John or to Zechariah about a son that he's going to give birth to named John. I want to jump to a different gospel because in the gospel of John, they describe who John will become. And I think it's important for our context and for this story today. So this is what the gospel of John says about the son named John that Zechariah and Elizabeth are promised in this story. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. This is a very different answer to a prayer that my guess is Zechariah and Elizabeth had stopped praying. They were going to give birth to someone who was then going to do something in the world that was going to help the entire world recognize and rediscover the true light. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. No matter how dark our world may seem, no matter how dark spaces or places in your life may feel, there is a light that is coming into our overly polluted light world. And it's a light that I don't want us to miss. It's a light that looks different than all of the other lights that are in this world. And it's a light that actually brings hope to the dark places in our life and in our heart. No amount of incandescent bulbs or LED Christmas lights can do what this true light can do. And so for the places that you've been hiding from this season from the places that you don't want to name, you don't want to talk about, for the prayers that you feel like have gone unanswered, there's a light coming. And today we can have hope because that's the case. Let me pray for our time together this morning. I'll invite the band back up to lead us in one last song. True light, true light, God of this world, You've come into our world to remind us that you are with us. In the midst of the darkness of our circumstances, in the midst of the darkness of the quality and the character of the world around us, God, your light still shines. Help us to recognize your presence in our life and to then go on and to share that light and to show that light to others. God, may we recognize the way that your light is already here in the way that your light is continuing to come into this world. We pray this in your name. Amen.